0: So good morning. A little froggy today, but our passage today is Colossians three eighteen to four six, loving like Christ. And I will first be reading from the message for verses eighteen to twenty five of chapter three, up to verse one of chapter four, mainly because I just like the tenor for this this for this message. Let's listen to God's word. Wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them in ways that honor the master. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives. Don't take advantage of them. Children, do what your parents tell you. This delights the master no end. Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. Servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters, and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. And masters, treat your servants considerately. Be fair with them. Don't forget for a minute that you too serve a master, God in heaven. These verses concern the Christian family, and Paul gives his advice here regarding specific relationships within the household, including the servant-master relationship. And actually, Paul's advice applies to all relationships. All relationships, Paul advises, are called to manifest on a daily basis this new life in Christ that now belongs to the believer. Paul says this means there is to be an attitude of mutual love and respect between wives and husbands, obedience on the part of children, and an example of healthy discipline on the part of parents. All family members and their servants are reminded that they too are servants of Christ and therefore must always conduct themselves as if they were serving the Lord. Paul actually expands this subject of how to live out our lives in service to Christ later in his letter to the Ephesians, especially in chapters 5 and 6. And I don't know if any of you were here when we did that study in the Women's Bible Study in 2012, but back then I was given the same passages that deal with this subject. And it makes people nervous, and it was sort of funny to me because I've never been married and I haven't had any children. Never have I walked the walk that many or most of you have. But that didn't stop me then, of course. (laughs) And it doesn't now from weighing in on the subject by examining and attempting to understand Paul's conveyance of God's thoughts on the matter. For even though I have never been married, I've certainly been influenced by marriage and family. For one thing, I was born of married parents, and for another, I grew up in a household with a challenging, not challenged, sibling who could often be overheard saying he was an only child. So... (laughs) Forgive me if I just dip back into some of the many things I discovered when I wrote on this subject seven years ago. (laughs) A central difference between what I remember of my childhood days and what Paul is calling us to in this passage is that mine was not a Christian household. We actually were under the lordship of Christ, we just didn't know it. But praise God, three of us eventually came to know that truth, and I'm still praying that the fourth one will one day too. You know, people have been weighing in on marriage for a very long time. I mentioned this before and will again. Socrates was said to have advised the young men of his day something like this. Yes, by all means, Mary, if you get a good wife, you'll become a happy man. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. Laughter Though Socrates wasn't really very concerned with young women getting a bad husband, I suppose the same thing could be true. It's true that nothing ruins life like a bad marriage. It spills over to the children and the children's children like ripples from a stone. And it is true that bad marriages can breed philosophers, but I'm afraid they more often breed cynics. And Paul wants Christians to be saved from all that by highlighting that marriage is, in fact, a divine institution. And it is all in preparation for the marriage, that one in which one day we shall all be presented to the bride of Christ at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we read in the book of Revelation that that marriage is our destiny. Paul is also aware that the Christian gospel is never going to convey any credibility to the modern world unless it can be shown that marriages work. And he is not ignorant of the fact that marriages are work. We do not live in a leave-it-to-beaver world, if any of you remember that now ancient TV program. So Paul states and expands three different areas of relationship based on the one principle found in Colossians three twenty three and 24. He writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. What Paul is saying is that God's plan of social organization is based on mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. What we hear today, of course, are demands for our rights. And, of course, there are such things as rights. The specification of human rights in the words of Jefferson set out in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We can all agree with that. And we know from history that those words have not always been taken to heart. But it is very important to notice that the Bible itself does not encourage us to think in terms of my rights. It insists, rather, that we think in terms of my duties, my responsibilities. According to the Bible, society is not a collection of autonomous, sovereign individuals, each struggling for his and her own rights. And I remember Alan once drawing the distinction between a person and an individual in a sermon one Sunday. He said, we usually consider a person and an individual as synonymous, but they are not. He explained that for the Christian, person always has a relational component because of our being made in the image of God, because of the relational persons of the Trinity. While individual emphasizes autonomy and independence, isolated and unto itself. In the particular pattern of authority structures that God has ordained, it's not a question of each member seeking to establish his or her own role, but more about being willing to submit to whatever role God has given in the structure. And why is that? Because behind that structure stands God himself, And any authority he grants is not to be wielded tyrannically, but exercised with solemn responsibility and is to be characterized by justice, kindness, and unselfishness. So human authority is not an absolute one. It is a delegated authority from God. And it is to God one in authority is accountable. Paul understands that the duties and responsibilities of both parties in a relationship must be balanced because one in authority can throw things out of balance and can so abuse their position of delegated authority that those under them have no option but to reject their own roles. In regard to the role of wife, we know it is a role we learn from our culture and society. And the traditional roles in many cultures for women have not been great. But we don't have time here to explore the roles the world has given women throughout history and how we may or may not like them. That is because what we Christian women are interested in is the transcultural role God has given us. And we need to understand that it is an elevated one, far more elevated than the role of the wife as it was portrayed in Greek and Roman society in Paul's day. It is not about subservience but it is a picture of the same role as that of the church to Christ. Whenever any of us submit one to another, it is to be expressed in the same way we respond to Christ, that is, freely, joyfully, and thankfully. On the wife's end in marriages, Paul says, husbands need to know that they can count on the support of their wives. And many of those of you who are married can discuss what that many faces of that support might look like. And what of the husbands? Paul says husbands are to love their wives. And in what way? In imitation of how Christ loves the church. I think of that as a very tall order. This love is a unique love expressed in utter faithfulness even when faithfulness is not returned just as Christ goes on loving us in spite of our sins. It is a sacrificial love. Look at the bride price Christ paid to redeem us. And it is a nourishing love, a love that shows concern for the beloved. Christ gave himself up in order to present us to himself as a radiant church, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.27 shining in spiritual wellness and holiness on our wedding day to him. Christ is not stingy in love, and nor should husbands be, nor should any of us be, for that matter. In Paul's words about children and parents, he is still wishing to strike a balance. The common center of the family is the Lord. Both parent and child are accountable to the Lord. Historically, There have been two major trends, it seems, in child-rearing. In Rome, in Paul's day, it was very much parent-centered, more father-centered than anything. A father could actually do anything he liked with his child. He could sell him into slavery. He could even have him put to death. Child-rearing in Victorian England (coughs) also exhibited oppressive parenthood. (coughs) A modern trend seems to be more child-centered, a parent is hesitant to say no to a child or to apply discipline for fear of imparting inhibitions to his or her developing character. But Paul, as I said, is wishing to strike a balance between the two, realizing that all of us from early on need some kind of training. Paul uses the imperative obey when he calls on children. He is telling them to remember the commandment to honor your father and mother. Paul knows that even when a child realizes that his or her mom and dad are not the paragons of virtue, he once thought they were, that they are fallible human beings, the child still needs to understand that their parental authority is based on something firmer than it is right just because I say so. The adolescent will at some point want to assert his own individuality, his own personhood, and may decide to throw off whatever he believes might be just based on fallible opinions. This inevitable problem in the family makes it all the more important that the Christian child come to an early understanding of the parent's derived authority, that it comes not from personal strength or position, but from an authority behind which God himself stands. Even so, Paul is also quick to make clear that using their authority, fathers, and this also applies to mothers, are not to embitter their children by provoking, frustrating, or exasperating them unnecessarily. Discipline is never a mandate for cruel authoritarianism. Discipline should always be consistent and done in moderation, just as God's discipline of us always is. So in summary, children are to be brought up in the training and instruction of the Lord. To bring them up literally means to nourish or to feed them. They are to understand that yielding to the authority of their parents is not meant to impede their freedom... Nor make life miserable for them, but is designed by the Lord, and it is there in order to bring them good. A person who learns obedience as a child is preparing himself or herself for life. There are lots of authority structures in society that will be encountered. And if one does not learn to live within an authority structure of the family, he or she will not be prepared adequately for life in society. This will only bring misery to oneself, but also to everyone else. And the child would need direction in making good choices. The knowledge of right and wrong cannot be assumed. It is something that must be taught. So the objective is in all discipline, for ours as well as the child's, is that obedience to the Lord leads not only to our good, but also enables us to know him better. Verses 3:22 to 4, 1 have to do with servants, and the word is literally slaves, and I don't want to get into the ugly issue of slavery in our own country or in others, because Paul is not talking here about the abject slavery of the 1600s to the 1800s, though slavery had been around long before that. Instead, I want to get to the heart of what Paul wants us to understand, and that is we are all part of the brotherhood of man. That is, we are all equal in God's eyes, and we all serve the same master in heaven. Paul is clear about this in his letter to the Ephesians, too. With the word heaven used in both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul introduces the realm of the eternal, the unseen the realm of absolutes. Janice spoke well about this in her excellent talk a few weeks ago. Paul writes that all Christians are to live with their eyes on these things. And why? Because heaven is where we're all going to spend eternity together with Christ. And the Christian slave has now been liberated from the slavery of men-pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ. Christ. So slaves should extend to their earthly masters obedience with integrity and wholeheartedness, conscientious in their service. After all, Paul reminds, they know they will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. I think we can take this as the same principle contemporary Christians should apply to their employment. All in whatever becomes our workplace is to be done with a view towards serving Christ. But I think it's important to highlight that we've seen in Paul's writings to the Philippians and Romans that he often makes the point that there is nothing <clears throat> inherently contrary to human dignity in being a servant or a slave. Jesus Christ took such a form himself it's mentioned in Philippians 2 6-8 and we know Paul repeatedly refers to himself as a slave of Christ as in Romans 1-1 the word is actually slave in both instances and in predominantly agrarian culture of the ancient world many men might sell themselves into slavery for the advantage against starvation and provision for his family. He was selling his labor in exchange for food, clothing, and shelter, and he may have done so for life. Nevertheless, Old Testament law had specific regulations that God ordained to guard against exploitation in the institution of slavery. To abduct or kidnap men with a view to selling them into slavery was a crime against God and punishable by death. You can see this in Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7. So scripture also makes plan that slavery or servanthood can be abused, just like marriage and the parent-child relationship. God knows any authority structure can be turned into a tyranny, and he abhors it. Paul's thoughts on all the relationships he writes about were revolutionary enough in his day. But what is even more revolutionary is his instructions to the masters of slaves. He tells them to provide their slave with slaves with what is right and fair because they both serve the same master in heaven. Paul is saying the master has a duty toward his slaves. Paul here is actually introducing the concept of mercy into the slavery issue because in Roman society, slaves were regarded as almost less than human. As in most of our understanding of slavery, the slaves had all the duties and the masters had all the rights. It was only slightly better in Greek society. Paul says the master was not to threaten his slaves. Slaves but to practice the do unto others as you would have them do unto you rule, because we are all slaves of Christ. By doing so, the master would be mimicking the treatment that we all have under God, under the headship of Christ, and that is treatment that is just and fair and protective. The last part of our text is Colossians 4, 2 to 6, and I'm reading in the ESV. Listen to God's word. so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In these verses, Paul focuses on two things. One, on an appeal for prayer support, and the other, a final plea for right conduct and speech. The verb behind the words continue steadfastly denotes an attitude of continuing constant piety rather than uninterrupted prayer. The word is once again defined as the mystery of Christ, as it was in one twenty-six and 2.2. But this time it requires a clarity of speech and the conviction of saying the right thing in order for an open door to be the means of proclaiming the word usefully. Paul is also highlighting the importance of having prayer support for any spiritual leader who is on the front lines whether it be in the pulpit, on the mission field, or as a Bible teacher. Verses 5 and 6 concentrate on the Christian's attitude toward outsiders. Christians are literally to redeem the time. That is to buy up every opportunity while the door is open to reach others. And Christian speech is to be gracious and suitable to questions that may be asked. Paul talks about how very important aspects of behavior the Christian is to exhibit before the world. But most important to know that in the verses of the letter to the Ephesians that parallel these verses in Colossians, Paul tells Christians to be filled with the Spirit. And that is because he knows none of us, no matter our role in life, has any hope of submitting ourselves to God and to one another unless we are so filled. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones hammers this truth home in his book, Life in the Spirit. He writes, it is useless to go to the world and say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The world does not do that. The world will not do that. The world cannot do that. This is a meaningless exhortation to anybody who is not filled with the Spirit. But, he said, we... We have to be unlike what we were. We have to be unlike the world. We have to be altogether different in our essential characteristics from men and women who belong to that realm. We are to be filled with the spirit. And this is said in a present continuous tense. We must go on being filled. Christ dwells in us and it's a day in and day out filling that we are to allow and experience. So with that in mind, let's pray. Grant us your grace, Lord, to fulfill the roles that you have divinely ordained for each of us, in our marriages, in our families, and in our work environments, so that the love which Christ bears for his church is plainly reflected for the world to see. And forgive us for the times that we've neglected our spouses, our children, our parents, siblings, or employees, or exploited them in any way for our own selfish ends. Grant us, Father, the attitude of service which your own son displayed. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.